Tim Barton as a friend. I first met Tim uh, as, a, as a young man, probably late high school, early uh, college years for him, uh, when I first met his mom and dad, uh, David and Cheryl Barton, uh, the founders of Wall Builders. As you know, Wall Builders is just up the road of Leo, up in Parkland County, our friends to the north. Wall Builders is, a, is an organization that emphasizes our religious, moral, constitutional heritage, uh, the documents uh, in our founding era, done more research and more background uh, than any other organization as it relates to the truth about the founding of this nation. And uh, Tim now is the president of War Builders. Tim, uh, his background is not just uh, uh, being under the tutelage of his dad from a historical perspective, but he is a ordained minister, he's been a worship leader, a youth pastor, a number of things that he's done. He's, in the media routinely, uh, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Beck, TVN, you'll see he and his father doing a number of shows uh, on the, uh, the founding of our, uh, of our nation and its heritage and, and uh, unknown stories that are not taught today in, uh, in schools. Tim is a great young man. He's my friend. He's a friend of this nation. He's a friend of our founding, founding fathers, our documents, friend of believers, and most of all, a friend of the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend and your friend and friend of Hood County, Mr. Tim Martin. I want to start with an idea following up from the Bible where Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is a side note, it's not what I'm going to focus on tonight, but the second sentence, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Just kind of the reality of where we are in culture, even Christians today, over 50% of Christians, do not believe you have to go through Jesus to get to heaven. Okay, and like well over 50% of Christians think that, well, because God's loving and a loving God wouldn't send, check, is this working? Is it okay? A loving God wouldn't send people to hell. The reality is we live in a culture where even Christians are confused by what is very clearly outlined in Scripture. Where, where Jesus says that he is truth. Right now we have a culture that isn't sure truth even exists anymore. Right? The truth is relative, it's objective. Well, well here's how I feel just a couple weeks ago. Not that I watched CNN. I'm going to preface. Don't get the wrong idea. But Don Lemon on CNN says, well, well, I feel like it's my job as, as a news host to present my truth, how it is for me as a black man. This is my truth. And he kept saying my truth. And I kept thinking, wait a second. There is no your truth, my truth. There is the truth. And then there is your opinion. But we live in a culture that doesn't believe truth exists anymore. And why does it even matter? Jesus said in John 8, 32, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. You cannot be set free from a truth that you do not know. And you can't be set free from a truth that you don't think exists. See, even as a Christian, if we live in a culture where there is no truth, the gospel message means nothing. Because if there is no truth, then, then Jesus isn't Jesus for everybody. He's just Jesus for people that choose to believe. No, no, that's not the way it works. Truth does exist. But in a culture that, that, that doesn't believe truth exists, that questions truth, or where truth is relative or subjective, right, or even collective in some situations, if there is no objective truth, then what's going to happen is whatever people read, whatever they see online, whatever is the last thing they heard, well, this is what must be true. Even if you watched some of the vice presidential debate last night, there was a lot of accusations being thrown around against Mike Pence, against Trump. Some of these that have been so heavily refuted, that have been so debunked, some of this stuff. And yet, the problem was, 
is if you looked, for example, at the CNN poll, over 70% of people in the CNN poll thought Kamala Harris won the debate. Because if the only thing you listened to was CNN, then you don't actually know the other side of the story. All you've heard is what they've been saying for how many months or years, whatever, how long you've been listening. And this is where we are in culture. People don't really know what's true. And it's like, we forget what the media does, right? The media's job in modern culture is not to present what is true. You need to know that. The media's job is to present what is sensational. Why? Because their job is to get more clicks, more likes, more shares, more views, because that drives up their avenues or their revenue rather than get from their ads, right? So, so this is what they're trying to do. And you need to know that because if we know that what I'm seeing isn't always true, then you shouldn't believe everything you see or everything you hear. And yet what we're seeing in the world around us is a world who is so often believing what they heard on social media, on the news, we are seeing riots happen in cities over things that never even happened. Literally never happened. In Chicago, several weeks ago, there was reports how police officers gunned down this unarmed teenage little 13 year old boy that shot him down. So people in Chicago said, we're not putting up with that. So they decided to go burn down buildings as a way of protest. And then like a day later, the body cam footage came out. And they realized, oh, it wasn't a 13-year-old boy. It was a 20-year-old man with a gun engaging the officers. Officers returned fire on an individual shooting on them. The individual was struck and died on the scene. But this wasn't an unarmed 13-year-old boy. But here's the problem is what we are hearing are things that are sensational. They're things that are done to drive emotions. But it's not necessarily true. And yet people watch online things as if this is true. we got to be a little smarter than that. And, and, and by the way, I can tell you that this is not just something we're saying based on CNN or MSNBC. I'll tell you, Fox falls in the same category at times where this, this is just the reality of where people are. And, and one of the things that's even crazy, if you look at our culture, if, if you go back a couple of months with where we are in culture, when, when before there was this, this level of rioting and looting, one of the things that was going on is the argument was we need to tear down statues, right? Do you remember we've had some of these issues in Texas, but, but the argument started off being we should tear down statues of racist people. Now, I'm against that argument to begin with, but let's say if we agreed with that argument, here's where to me it got really, really silly, really fast and really crazy because one of the things that happened is you had states up north for example, if you have seen this picture before, this image of Abraham Lincoln, uh, Lincoln where he's, he's helping these emancipated slaves, there was a monument in Washington, D.C., was the first place this was built, where former slaves who'd been emancipated because of the work of Abraham Lincoln, they decided they wanted to build a statue, a monument to honor Abraham Lincoln. So they raised their own money, and they create this statue in Washington, D.C. A duplicate statue was then done in Boston. Now remember, this was done by former slaves as a way to honor Abraham Lincoln. The mayor of Boston says we need to take this down because clearly this is racist of a white man showing his supremacy over the black man. This was built by former slaves, right? Like, even if we're arguing against this racist notion, this makes no sense whatsoever, but this is what we saw happening. In fact, even in Cleveland, Ohio, there was a, a monument that was done to Union soldiers who actually fought in the Civil War trying to end slavery. Like, there's no way you can look at these guys and say these guys are racist, but they said, nope, that statue needs to come down. Clearly, these are racist guys. Even if you 
you go to California where they tore down General Grant's statue. And if you don't remember General Grant, okay, let me just throw out a few thoughts real quick. He was not the nicest guy in the world, right? Probably not like the friendly grandpa elder at your church. He was not that guy. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was trying to find a general who would be willing to actually go fight to win because before the Civil War, all of the officers had been friends. They'd gone to West Point together, and, and, and many of them recognized that I don't want to actually hurt my friend, and Grant was a guy who was like, I'll kill all of them. I never liked him. We were never friends. Turn me loose. Right? Grant was not the nicest guy, but Grant clearly... As the leader in the Union forces during the Civil War, fought against slavery, but more importantly, after the Civil War, when he became president, he was the president that was in charge when all of the Reconstruction measures happened. So, so when rights start being passed constitutionally for black Americans, when things are changing, when equality is actually coming to America, he's the president in charge. But we're saying, no, no, we need to tear him down because he's a white man from history. And this is when you start going, okay, Right? So we're not really attacking what we think is racist anymore. What we're attacking is American history. This is part of the objective of Marxism, right? Which, if you guys have paid attention, Black Lives Matter, the organization, right? The three women who founded it said that they were Marxist trained. Marxists is what they want to do, even part of the 1619 project. All of this was built on this notion of Marxism. And Marxism says that you have to tear down the existing standard norms, right? Whatever's the norm in society, you have to tear that down. And so it's not surprising that they're saying America's bad. It's just surprising how far they go using the stupidity of mankind. Because one of the things that happened is then some of these Black Lives Matter protesters and writers, right? Black Lives Matter, they go to the face, the monument for the Mass 54th Regiment. Which, okay, so either you know nothing about history, which is probably true for them, right? You are incredibly being controlled and manipulated, again, probably true for them, or your objective is not to oppose racism or promote black lives, it's just to try to attack America. Because the Mass 54th Regiment was this huge black regiment in the, right, the Civil War. This is the one that Frederick Douglass is the guy that helps raise the regiment. Two of his sons actually fight in this regiment. And, and at this time in American history, there was still a debate about whether the black man could be as good as the white man when he came to battle. Because there were questions, well, we're not sure he could be as, as courageous or as brave or as heroic. And then the Mass 54th goes through more training than any other military regiment. The entire Civil War, when they finally take the battlefield, it is absolutely amazing how many of those men received Congressional Medals of Honor for their heroism and bravery on the battlefield. They were astounding on the battlefield, totally showed the world that, no, no, the black man absolutely equal to the white man when we're doing this thing. Really remarkable. And yet, we're saying we need to destroy this monument. Why? Because it's part of American history. The same reason we would tear down a Frederick Douglass statue. Okay, how are we thinking he was a racist guy? He was a former slave. Like, nothing about this makes sense, except when you realize what we're attacking is not racism. It's a Marxist ideology, and we're attacking America. Then it's no surprise that even if you had the Founding Fathers, we're tearing down things like the statue of Caesar Rodney. There's only one thing Caesar Rodney is known for or famous for. Riding a horse one time at night. Literally, that's all. When America was determining that we were going to separate from Great Britain, and, and they're taking a vote in the Continental Congress, as we're trying to get the states to approve this, Delaware had only two delegates present. And one delegate voted in favor, one voted against. Well, John Hancock says, no, we have to get everybody on board. If every state doesn't approve this, we can't do it. 
The guy in favor of it writes back to Caesar Rodney, says, hey, we need your votes. We need you to get here. Caesar Rodney got word, rode the entire night on horseback, arrives the next day in time for the vote. His vote now gave the two-to-one advantage for Delaware to approve it. And so America determines we're going to separate from Great Britain. That's the only reason he has a statue, only reason it's a monument. The corner of Delaware shows his picture. The reality, though, nobody even knows who this guy was. But because he's a white guy from history, he must be bad. you got to tear him down. Even a guy like George Washington. Okay, granted, he wasn't perfect. But there is no America without George Washington. Without his leadership in the revolution... With, with, with the fact that at the end of the revolution, his soldiers come to him and they're like, we don't trust Congress at all. We think you should be king. And he says, guys, we just fought a war to get away from kings. We don't need a new king. Let's trust the process, right? Let's let Congress figure it out. When, when it's time for the Constitution, he's a guy in charge, voted to be the leader of the Constitution Convention. Without his leadership, the Constitution never would have happened. And then he's the guy chosen to be the very first president, the only president in American history chosen unanimously. Nobody voted against him. Okay, that's not bad for the resume, right? When you're unanimously chosen president, and then after two terms, he steps down showing what a peaceful transfer of power looks like. In the era of monarchs, he showed this is how a Republican work. America would not exist if it was not for George Washington, but we say no. He was a bad guy from history, tear him down, same thing with Thomas Jefferson, even though no governing document in the history of the world before Jefferson drafted the declaration, no governing document espoused that all men are created equal. Because at this time, everything was based on class. It was based on nobility, it was based on station in life. And he said, no, 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 we recognize in America, it's not about the title, it's not about being noble, it's about the fact that we were created in God's image, that's how we're equal. This is a remarkable step forward for all of humanity, all of civilization in the entire world. And yet what we're saying is, no, 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 the founding fathers, they were all really bad people. And here's the, the base accusations that are said, right? Well, America is bad and the founding fathers were evil. These are the things that are repeated time and time and time again. To debunk that very quickly, let me give you first of all a Bible thought. And let me show you some historical thought. But let me show you a Bible thought first. If you look at the Bible, which I always recommend, it's a good place to go for answers. If you look at the Bible, one of the heroes in the Bible is King David from the Bible. And David certainly is a hero. He was described as being a man after God's own heart. Nobody else in the Bible was described that way. So David was a special person. With that being said, one of the things we know about David is that he also was a great warrior. He killed lions. He killed bears. And we know he did that because before he kills Goliath and Saul asks him, well, why should we trust this kid, right, to go up against this mighty warrior? David says, no, no, it's fine. I've already been killing lions and bears. That's a lot more significant than most people realize because scholars estimate David was only between 14 and 17 years old when he killed Goliath. Which means he was killing lions and bears when he was 10, 11, 12, right? This is remarkable because I think, right, obviously as a proud Texan, um, first of all, let me just say, I used to own guns, but I sold them all. just for the government listening. But if you give me one of my rifles, you drop me in the woods and you tell me there's lions and bears around, good luck, I'm terrified. David had a stick and a rock and he was killing lions and bears. 
we know he was a good warrior. He was very good at what he did. He had to be to do this at the age he did it. And not only that, the Bible also gives an indication he was a very talented musician. Right? King Saul was troubled by evil spirits. David comes in and plays the harp, and Saul finds peace. On top of the fact David writes the majority of the book of Psalms, David really is very impressive in a lot of results, right? A lot of areas. He's an amazing warrior, an amazing worshiper, but the Bible doesn't stop there with the story of David. The Bible talks about David as a family man and actually gives you a glimpse at the humanity of David and a lot of brokenness in David's life. Because the Bible tells us about Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. Amnon was the one who had a crush on his sister. And forcibly knew his sister. And I'm saying it that way because there's young years in the room, right? This is what he does. Absalom is a guy who finds out, and he's like, no. So Absalom goes and kills Amnon. Absalom then is going, my father has no idea what he's doing. Absalom tries to violently overthrow and take the throne from David. And, and if you remember how the story unfolds, Absalom's the guy who got his hair caught in the tree, and then David's men use him as javelin practice, and that's the end of Absalom, right? <laughs> Then we learn about Adonijah. When we learn about Adonijah, the Bible says, Adonijah, comma, the son whom David never corrected. I want you to think about this, right? So for everybody who's been a parent, it's not did you ever. It was how many times a day were you like, hey, buddy, put that down. Hey, don't touch that. Hey, sweetie. Like, this isn't did you ever. It was how many times a day were you doing if you are a parent and you never once offer guidance, instruction, correction to your child, you are a terrible parent. If you read the story of David's kids, David almost never interacted with his kids. David was a terrible father. I would argue David was the worst father in the Bible. And if you can show me someone you think was worse, I can at least contend David's at least the runner up for worst father of the year. Right? And I would argue he is the worst. But here's the point. The Bible shows us even the failures of David's humanity and some of his greatest failures. If you look at the fact that the Bible says there's a time when kings went to war and David stayed home and looked out from his balcony and he saw this woman of unusual beauty who was bathing, Bathsheba. Remember, he has the affair. She gets pregnant. David goes, oh my gosh, what do I do? He calls her husband Uriah back to say, hey, you should spend some time with your wife. Y'all have a good time. Like, take the weekend. Go enjoy yourself. Uriah won't. David says, what do I do? David gets him drunk. Uriah still won't go back. So David says, you know what? We'll just send this guy to the front lines, and we'll just let the enemy bump this guy off. David literally has him murdered. David is an adulterer and a murderer, and this is a really ugly part of David's life. And here's what's crazy about this. The Bible unapologetically tells us the whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the reason I point this out is if you only knew that David killed Goliath, you don't know King David. But if you only knew that David had an affair and murdered the husband, you don't know King David. When you learn the whole story, then you know, warts and all, I understand who this was. Now, but here's, here, here's the, the point I want to make with this. The reason it matters we learn the whole story, one of the things that happens in culture today is the modern argument is, well, we can't celebrate people who have done bad things. I want you to think about this first of the Christian. If we can't celebrate people who have done bad things, what does that do to heroes of the Bible? Now, think about this, even if you're not a Christian, if we can't celebrate people who have done bad things, who will you celebrate ever again? <laughs> ever. Now, Jesus, right? Oh, okay, that would be a good person to celebrate. I'm in favor of that. But understand, this is the, this is the stupidity of the argument. 
Well, well, that person's not perfect. And this is where, let me just remind you of these accusations. As Christians, we always should see things differently because we should see things through the lens of the Bible. And, and the Apostle Paul wrote that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means all of us are jacked up and need Jesus. Yes. Everybody. Right? This is not complicated. Nobody's perfect. But what that means is when we look at history... My expectation is not that I will find a perfect person apart from Jesus. My expectation is, nope, everybody I ever study historically is someone who was jacked up and needs Jesus. That is my expectation. But, but here's where I want to bring it home. Why can we as Christians celebrate King David when we know he wasn't perfect? And here's what I want to point out. Because we never celebrate David in his sinful moments. Instead, what we are able to celebrate, and this is true in the Bible, it's true in history, it's true in America. What we celebrate is how a perfect God uses imperfect people and does great things through them. This is what we celebrate historically. I'm not... I'm not looking to go, okay, George Washington never made mistakes. No, no, my starting place is he made a lot of mistakes. Right? If you know the Bible, the Apostle Paul said, the things I want to do, I never do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. Everybody's imperfect. Everybody is the flesh. That's why Paul wrote that you have to crucify the flesh and its sinful desires and you walk in the spirit. Everybody battles flesh. And that's why I'm never surprised by the flesh. Anytime someone says, can you believe they did that? Yes. <laughs> like, why would you be surprised? I, I don't understand. Like, everybody has flesh. However, where history becomes impressive, and even the reason we have heroes in the Bible, is not because we found a perfect person. Instead, we see the moments when a perfect God used that imperfect person in spite of their imperfections and did something great through them. In fact, even from a Bible thought, if you go, for example, to Hebrews chapter 11, it's known as the Faith Hall of Fame. Okay, this is where heroes of the faith are upheld. Look to them for their example. If you ever go through the list in Hebrews 11, and just consider who these people were and what they did. Noah was a drunkard. Abraham was a liar and a cheat. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson was a womanizer. David was a murdering adulterer and a terrible father. How are these heroes? And you nailed it exactly. Why would the Bible give us these examples for us to look up to. And I would argue it's only so that God knows and communicates that there's hope for you. There's hope for me. Because if God could use those kind of people, okay, there's hope. Because in our lives, it's not about our goodness we rely on. Right? It's about who God is and the fact that God uses broken, jacked up people all the time. And, and by the way, not to get Donald Trump yet... But I think he's one of the most biblical examples of a leader we've ever had. <laughs> I'm just saying. Right? Can you say that again? This is 
something, and, and, and let me give you let me give you one more Bible example, and I'm going to show you a little history. But this is something that we lose so often thinking in, in modern perspective, even in Christianity, and we lose context. If you think about Noah, Noah was chosen by God, and in Genesis 6, 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man. This is why Noah was chosen, because everybody else around him was so evil and wicked and bad. Actually, the rest of the verse says he was blameless in his generation. And here's where it's interesting. If you remember, right, he builds the ark. It takes him a long time to build the ark. And then the animals come, and then it rains 40 days and 40 nights. And then finally, the rain stops, and the water finally begins to recede. And the ark lands on Mount Ararat, and Noah gets off. And then there's this covenant with God, and a rainbow in the sky. And then we're going to flood again. And, and this is part of the Noahic covenant. And then from it, you get the Noahide laws. And all this unfolds. Then Genesis 9, verse 19, says, And Noah was a farmer and planted a vineyard. In verse 20, anybody know what happens in verse 20? It says he got drunk and passed out naked. Now, when I think of righteous and blameless, you know what I don't think about? In fact, let me just preface. If you go to church somewhere, if you had an elder or a deacon at your church, and they got drunk and passed out naked and everybody saw them, they're no longer an elder or a deacon at your church. So, so, so why would the Bible say that Noah was perfect and blameless? It actually doesn't if you go back and study the Hebrew. Because what we lose in the context is, is what happens at the end of that line. It says that he was blameless where? In his generation. What it actually says in Hebrew is that Noah was more righteous and more honorable than all the other men living. It doesn't say he was perfect. And this is so interesting. Because one of the things that happens is if we just look at Noah by today's standards, we would say, oh, Noah was terrible. Okay, yeah, Noah could not be an elder or deacon in our church. Granted, sure, fine. However, we're not comparing Noah to our standards. We always want to compare people to the culture and time and the context of what they lived in. So if you look at the time in which Noah lived... Noah wasn't perfect, but he was so much better than everybody else. <laughs> I would point out, George Washington, look at Virginia. He wasn't perfect, but he was far better than almost everybody else in Virginia. You judge them in the context of the time in which they live, and this is something even the Bible shows us, and yet today, we lose this perspective, and one of the things I want to point out from the Founding Fathers, see, today people attack the Founding Fathers looking at modern standards that oftentimes we have fabricated, and one of the accusations is, well, wait a second, the Founding Fathers couldn't be good, and the argument we hear so often is that America is racist and was built by slavery. Now, racist in present tense, so we're still racist in the argument today, and it was built by slavery. First of all, let me just tell you, there is no nation in the world where there is more equality for people of different races and ethnicities than in America today. There's no other nation in the world where there's more opportunity and more equality. Okay? With that being said, let me back up this thought that America was built by slavery because we hear this a lot. The 1619 Project is promoting this. The 1619 Project, if you're not familiar from the New York Times, it is being used in public schools all over the U.S. as new history curriculum standards. It is a problem for a lot of reasons, but mostly because it's so dishonest and inaccurate. And even the author, or at least the chief editor from this project, when she was challenged by even secular leftist historian professors who said, this is not accurate at all. 
She said, that's okay. I'm just trying to shift the narrative. Literally, she's on record saying it's okay that what I'm saying isn't totally accurate because I'm just trying to shift the narrative. Well, if we're going to say, let's talk about this narrative, then I want to go back to what Jesus said. We, we need to think about what's true, right? Truth sets people free. Let's talk about what's true for a second. What's true is if you look at slavery, now these are headlines that have come out over the last couple of months. Okay, so, so saying America was built by slavery, and there's some crazy, crazy claims and statements made that, that are not grounded at all. But if we're going to make this thought that America was built by slavery, first of all, you need to know that America was not a world leader in the global slave trade. This is important, because if you look at the global slave trade, or for example, the African slave trade or the North Atlantic slave trade, which is kind of the same thing, it happened from roughly 1501 to 1875. There was approximately 12.7 million slaves taken out of Africa. So that's a lot of people, but that's 375 years to a big span we're looking at. They actually have been able, historians have gone back and they've been able to document from these slaves coming out of Africa, where they were shipped, where they arrived, where they landed, and they've been able to estimate where roughly those 12.7 million slaves went and where they ended up. And when you look at what they've discovered now, what I'm going to show you, this is not historically debated. Okay, this is agreed upon by people that study history, and this is like left and right agreement. Nobody debates this. Here's what's interesting. Of the 12.7 million slaves that came out of Africa, 43% went to Portugal and Brazil, 24% went to Great Britain, 15% went to Spain, 11% went to France, 5% went to the Dutch, 2.5% went to the United States, and 1% went to Denmark. What is true historically is America did participate in something that was very bad and was very evil. That is true. But the accusations today, for example, there was a Democrat congressman this year who said that America created slavery. Okay, even if you don't believe the Bible and you didn't know like about Joseph and his brother sold of slavery or like Exodus and Moses shows up, like even if you didn't know that, how did you miss the history of the Greeks and Romans? Like, I, I don't understand. How, how did you, America created slavery, but this is the accusation. And, and this, again, I'm not saying that America didn't do something bad because we did, but I want to make sure we understand in context because if we're going to say America's bad. How come no one ever talks about Portugal and Brazil? I, I'm just curious because if we're going to tell the story, let's at least tell the honest whole story of what happened. And one of the things that's worth noting, if you look at, at, at slavery and especially look at history, one of the things you see very quickly is that all nations had slavery. It was a global condition. Every single people group in the history of the world at some point were enslaved and at some point enslaved somebody else. So this is not uniquely an American issue. This is a global issue. With that being said, acknowledging America participated in a global evil. Sure, fine. Let me also tell you what else America did. Because America was the very first nation in the history of the world to ban the slave trade. Thomas Jefferson signed that law March 2nd, 1807. First nation in the history of the world to ban the slave trade. That law went into effect January 1st, 1808. We were the first nation to say no more slave trade. We were the fourth nation in the history of the world to actually ban slavery. England did it in 1833, then Denmark, then France. America was fourth in 1865 with the 13th Amendment after the Civil War, ending slavery. In 1865, there were 124 nations in the world. America was the fourth nation of 124 nations to end slavery. And arguably, if we're going to say the Civil War helped bring an end to slavery, America started earlier in 1807, and America paid a higher price than any other nation in the history of the world with more than 600,000 people that died in the Civil War to see slavery ended in America. Okay? This is a big deal. And by the way, just in case you don't know, if you look at the world today, at the United Nations this year, there was 193 member nations that were part of the United Nations. 
94 of those nations still have not passed laws outlawing or banning slavery in their nation. Slavery still exists today, and there's an estimated more than 40 million people enslaved today. Slavery is legal in China. And actually, when we talk about buying stuff from China, you can just know most of the stuff you buy was not made by willing participants. Slavery still exists. In Africa, there's more than 9.2 million people enslaved today in Africa. This still exists, and yet, if you look at, at how is the world responding to this, if you go to globalslaveryindex.org, they track slavery throughout the world, and they see who are the nations doing the most to oppose slavery. Interesting when you look at their list, and I actually have a little circle around it. These are the top two nations. Number one nation in the world right now opposing slavery is the Netherlands. Number two is the United States of America. Even today, America is doing more to fight slavery than basically any other nation in the world. We started sooner, we paid a higher price, and we still are currently doing more to oppose slavery than any other nation in the history of the world. So if we're going to talk about slavery, let's at least keep it in context and say America did participate in an evil that was a worldwide global condition of evil, but America has done more. She did it sooner. She paid a higher price and is still the most active participant of any nation in the history of the world to oppose this evil of slavery. This is where... When you see things like the 1619 Project that our kids are learning now that America was built by slavery and America's evil because of slavery, you're leaving a whole lot out of that story, yeah. right? I have no problem with talking about the fact that America had slaves. We did. It's true. But let's at least tell the whole story if we're going to do it, which is what we see from the Bible. And let's make sure we're judging in the context of the time in which they lived. And this is what we have so much lost today. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4. He said, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, think about these things. The problem is most of our modern culture, we are thinking about whatever some professor said, whatever some news anchor said, whatever one of our friends posted on social media. That's not necessarily true. And we want to make sure that we are saying, okay, what is actually true? And what is true historically? What is true biblically? And what is especially true in America? It's not that America was a perfect nation. Absolutely not. But what is true is you see in America, almost more than any other nation in the history of the world, how a perfect God used imperfect people and did great things through them. And let me show you one example story as we wrap up this time from me. One of the people that I really appreciate and enjoy talking about is a guy named John Quincy Adams. He was the sixth president of the United States. He was the son of John Adams. He grew up during the Revolution. His father used to have the Massachusetts Minutemen practice their musket drills in front of the John Adams house. When John Quincy Adams was only eight years old, his dad gave him a musket and told him to go train with the Minutemen. Which let me just tell you, right? Like, father goals? Okay. My dad would have given me my deer rifle and been like, son, go play with the Green Berets, go play with the Navy SEALs. Yes. You win Father of the Year Award forever. That was awesome. This was John Adams, John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, when he's 11 years old, he gets assigned to be the official secretary to the diplomatic staff that goes over to Paris to negotiate the end of the American Revolution. When he's 14, he is assigned to be part of the diplomatic team going before the throne of Catherine the Great in Russia. He was the interpreter as a 14-year-old because he was already fluent in six languages. As a 14-year-old. Then, when George Washington becomes president, under George Washington, He's chosen a diplomat. George Washington said he's the best diplomat America ever had. Then under John Adams' father, he again is chosen to be a diplomat. Under Thomas Jefferson, he's elected to be a U.S. senator. Then under James Madison, he's the guy, again, chosen to be a diplomat. He's the guy that negotiates the end of the War of 1812. Interestingly, he also was appointed by, by James Madison to be a U.S. Supreme Court justice. He was actually confirmed by the Senate. He turned it down. 
Because he said, I'm trying, number one, to end the war, and number two, the Supreme Court's not that special, I don't want to be on it. <laughs> it used to be a little different in early America, right? Supreme Court's kind of grown a little bit since then, and... and some unconstitutional ways, but I would digress going there. Under James Monroe, he was elected to be the Secretary of State. He then became the sixth president of the United States of America. After being president, he did something no other president in the history of our nation has done. He went back and he served, got elected to serve in Congress. And the reason he ran for Congress after being the president, he said there's a great evil in America that needs to be remedied, and it was the evil of slavery. He got to Congress and was the leader of the anti-slavery movement. In Congress, they gave him the nickname the Hellhound of Abolition because this was the issue he clung on to. This was his big deal, the thing he cared the most about. While he was there, he fought against slavery. 17 years he was in Congress, and, and fighting against slavery time after time after time, he had a reporter come to him one day and say, Mr. Adams, in the midst of your fighting, you've never really had much success I'm just curious, how do you stay motivated to keep fighting when you've never been successful? His response was really brilliant. It was based on his life motto. He said his life motto is duty is ours, results are God's. That's a great life motto. What he told the reporter, he said, the reason I stay motivated is because it's only up to me to do the right thing. I leave the rest in God's hands. It's a really good thought. So he keeps fighting and fighting, leading the anti-slavery movement. Well, Congress serves for two-year terms, and you have to run for re-election. His last term in Congress, there was a young freshman who was elected to Congress. And this young freshman who got elected decided that he wanted to join the anti-slavery movement. So he signs up with John Quincy Adams, and John Quincy Adams is a mentor to him during this two-year term. John Quincy Adams has a stroke and dies that last term in Congress, and when he dies, this young freshman decides, I want to help carry the banner. So this young freshman runs for a re-election, except he got defeated. Not to be discouraged, he said, I'm going to run again. He ran again, got defeated. He then decided, since he couldn't win in Congress again, he would run for a U.S. Senator, got defeated. He then ran for state office, again got defeated. He did not win another election until he became the President of the United States of America. And when he gets elected President, he had been mentored by John Quincy Adams, who was the leader of the anti-slavery movement, and Abraham Lincoln says, we're gonna end slavery in America. And he works to end slavery in America. He actually gets the job done helping end slavery in America. And let me point something out that is so significant. John Quincy Adams fought his entire life for something he never saw accomplished. But he had no idea that God was using him to mentor the very people that would get it done. And we look at our nation today, and there's a lot of nervous and anxious people. There's a lot of hand-wringing going on. Let me tell you, first of all, as a Christian, we don't need to be hand-wringing. We know who wins. I know what side I'm on. I'm not worried about it, right? I know where I'm going. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I know where I'm going. With that being said, we've been praying a long time in America. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, they've been praying a long time for God to move and do things in America. And it's very possible that some of you in this room... You won't live long enough, for example, to see things like Roe versus Wade overturned. It might only be 10, 5, 8, 15 years. We have no idea. But the fact is, even though you might not see some of these victories, who knows, but that God might use you to raise up and train up and mentor and pour the people to get the job done. And here's what's significant to me about this story. John Quincy Adams, Abraham Lincoln, both of those dudes were really jacked up. Abraham Lincoln, oh my gosh. If you don't know that dude's story, wow. But there's no doubt 
that a perfect God used those imperfect men and did something great through them. And this is part of the story of America that is being so lost when we say we can't celebrate people who have messed up. No, no, no. We don't celebrate their sin. But we celebrate how God used them in spite of their sin and did things to advance society, civilization in America, taking us to a place where we have become the most successful nation in the history of the world. Not because of perfect people, but because a perfect God used perfect people. And one of the things I would point out when people talk about how America's done so many bad things, we've done so many atrocities. You name any atrocity you want. And my only question is how did it end in America? And here's the reason I ask that question. Because without exception, any atrocity you name ended because pastors, Christians, and churches stood up and said, we're not doing this anymore. God used imperfect people, and every time there were problems in our nation, God raised up the Christians, the leaders, the churches, and the pastors to put a stop to it. This is one of the things that makes our nation so exceptional and so special. I, I would tell you, if you want to know more about it, well, by the way, one of the things that, that David wrote in Psalms is blessed in that nation is God is the Lord. And one of the reasons we've been such a blessed nation is because we've had leaders more than any other nation who remembered and recognized who God was. And every time we diverted course, we got back on track. And it's boggling again to my mind to think that God is using somebody like a Donald Trump to help America remember who God is. But it's because God doesn't need perfect people. He's perfect. He uses imperfect people to do great things, and this is part of the story of America. If you want to know more, we have a, a resource called The American Story. Uh, we actually have a couple books over here, and we start with Christopher Columbus. And we go through roughly Abraham Lincoln telling their whole story, the good, the bad, the ugly. And what you will discover when you learn their stories is even though they weren't perfect, they were somebody, many of them who even recognized and desired to be used by God. But you will recognize that God used these imperfect people and did great things through them. Also, our website, wallbuilders.com. There are scores of information and resources there. We also are all over social media. A lot of stuff going on. We have videos coming out every single day just about that you can follow. You can see some of these videos. We tell some of these stories. The last thing I'm going to encourage you with as we finish, Proverbs 14.34 tells us that righteousness exalts a nation. As we are trying to figure out how do we help America, the Bible gives us the answer, righteousness. Well, when we look at elections, our main concern should be righteousness. How do we determine righteousness? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. Some candidates are in favor of the unborn. Some are in favor of murdering the unborn. Some are in favor of religious liberty and churches being able to meet and worship God. And some are in favor of churches being locked down, even though the liquor stores and the pot shops can be open. Right? Some are supporters of Israel. Some are not. Righteousness is not hard when you look for it, but you can't be confused. Policies impact righteousness more than a personality does. And we are in an era when people want us to focus on the personality of a candidate. Personality does not determine righteousness. Policies determine righteousness, and the Bible tells us righteousness is what exalts a nation. What our nation needs is a reawakening to righteousness. And that only happens when Christians who know what righteousness is get involved in the process and vote for areas of righteousness. As Christians, we got to get involved in this process and restore righteousness. Thank you guys so much for letting me share. Aren't you glad that you were able to stand? Oh, let's pray. Father, we thank you.